So, you know, our next guest, I had trouble coming up with a title for the show. And then I was thinking about our next guest. His name is Andrew Karibko. And I was thinking about, um, I, I'd recently looked at, uh, Between Two Ages, um, by Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, in the Technotronic era. And I wrote an article, I was, uh, for a magazine, um, ha- bearing this in mind, uh, that we're moving into the Technotronic area. But, and, and I all thought to myself, Brzezinski really had uh, quite a few things visualized uh, back in the 60s and 70s, some of which has come to fruition. But could he have really visualized uh, the mesh of globalization, um, which we have today, the, the completely seemingly interconnected, interdependent world? And so I was looking for a title and I thought the grand chessboard, but I thought this isn't a game of chess anymore. Uh, Brzezinski is up against a kind of an AI system, if you will, a sort of self, self-perpetuating, self-regulating system worth, we're being flung forward in the 21st century. And, uh, in order to, to try to make sense of it, or my next guest, he is a political analyst, a journalist, uh, he is also a expert counsel, uh, for the Institute of Strategic Studies and Predictions at the People's Friendship University in Russia. And he's also on staff at Sputnik News. Many of you are familiar with Sputnik. Uh, and I believe he is also contributing to a number of publications, uh, I believe, including the um, uh, Oriental Review and uh, many others. His name is Andrew Karibko. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, let's just uh, fast forward a little bit. We were t- going to discuss, uh, you know, the, the historical perspective of of uh, Russia, uh, Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, Eurasia, and uh, the apparent clash of civilizations um, that this part of the world is, have seems to experience over the years. And uh, but moving forward from that, um, right now, uh, one of the hot uh, p- parts of the grand chessboard right now is uh, the Arabian Peninsula. And specifically, uh, I wanted to talk about Yemen. We have discussed Syria in great detail in this program uh, on previous weeks, and uh, our listeners are very aware of what's going on there. But uh, something has been happening in Yemen over the last 12 months that uh, has been, frankly, pretty much ignored um, by the media. A lot of people aren't aware of what's going on because it's been overshadowed and completely engulfed by the conflict in Syria and the ISIS crisis. So um, just fast forward to their reports of boots on the ground uh, this last week, U.S. troops. Um, we I've heard report 200 more Marines uh, being dispatched and U.S. frigates in Aden port uh, yesterday. Uh, so we'll see if those trickle out into the mainstream media over the next couple of days. But um, how important uh, geostrategically and geographically uh, is Yemen uh, in this part of the world? Okay, the way I look at it is that Yemen, I know everybody says it's, it's the gate to the Bab al-Mandab, which is small, little, very tiny, narrow uh, strait, and that's true. But I'd like to expand on that a bit and why that's important, because it's one thing to say it's important, but it's another thing to really explain that in a contemporary perspective. And the way I look at it is, yes, of course, this is the narrow choke point through which most east-west trade, maritime trade, to Europe must pass en route to one of the two Suez canals. Let's not forget, Egypt just opened up the new Suez Canal not even a year ago. 
Now, why this is all important in the larger scheme of things, it goes back to what we were mentioning before we experienced technical difficulties. And what I wanted to really end, end up with saying is that there's a new reconsolidation taking place. And this isn't just in the Eurasian sphere. This is in the actual supercontinental sphere, and it's driven by China. China's new Silk Road projects, officially called the One Belt, One Road Policy, both mainland and maritime. How the maritime segment of Obor, or you know, One Belt, One Road, uh, correlates to what's happening in Yemen is that Chinese ships, and even European ships, if we're going to talk about bilateral trade, must pass through these waterways to trade with China or to trade with Europe. Now, for China, this is so critical because the People's Republic needs to maintain and sustain steady growth in order to preserve internal stability. Basically, their economy has gotten to the point now where they're not a quote-unquote third-world economy anymore, so they need to export a lot of their excess products in order to continue growing. Why this is important is they need markets. They also need, they also need outbound investment or outsourcing. I mean, I was in China last September for a very brief conference in the city of Yanyongan. It's right near Nanjing, known for the rape of Nanjing, actually. And they really emphasize how important it is for China to have overseas trading partners that are reliable. And the European Union, for all of its internal problems right now, particularly economic, it's still a huge market with people capable of buying whatever they want to buy, for the most part, relatively, right? Mm -hmm. So China needs this in order to continue trading with Europe. Now, if you control Yemen, this is what it all gets down to. If you control Yemen, you can control those straits that are going to put a chokehold on China's trade if need be, or at least monitor it. Because right now, right now, this is becoming such a flashpoint, the whole you know, Arabian Peninsula, Horn of Africa region, precisely because of that. And why else it's important, we look at another rising power, India. India also wants to trade with Europe, and they also want to do it via maritime routes. They have mainland routes as well that they're charting to spearhead. But this, by controlling Yemen, you, you keep the two Asian powers in check. Now, that's only relative, though, depending upon what happens with climate change and the melting of the polar ice caps. If that does melt, according to what many people are thinking, by 2020, the next couple of years, these East Asian economies and South Asian economies might be able to have alternative trade routes through the Arctic, but then you have another choke point. You have that Bering Strait choke point. So right now, we look at the whole world, Patrick, and it's coming down to a battle for choke points or how to get around those choke points. And Yemen, because of where it's located, is so important. The U.S. wants to go in there. Saudi Arabia is already in there. And they're trying to establish firm control in order to preserve dominance over this waterway. And Yemen's a very interesting country. Um, and for, for the most part, it's off of a lot of people's radar uh, culturally and politically. But when you delve into the history of Yemen, it's got a very interesting history in terms of uh, uh, repelling invasions. For instance, um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, folklore in, in, in Yemeni culture. Um, they call it the, the graveyard of invaders. Uh, and also the self-determination is a really important theme. Uh, self-governance has always been a big uh, important theme. And there's been many points where tri tribal tr various tribes have been united in Yemen uh, to basically repel a uh, common enemy. And uh, this is very much underestimated, of course. You can imagine the, the level of uh, historical or geographical um, uh, nuancing in Washington is, is probably very low uh, and, and historical knowledge by a lot of these, uh, what I would call nation builders. They look at this purely in terms of energy. And there is a very, uh, very much an untapped 
energy field uh, with regards to gas and oil in Yemen. Uh, and Saudi Arabia has made overtures in the past unsuccessfully uh, to establish a pipeline uh, project um, going through uh, the south, I believe, um, of the country. So th- there, there is an energy play up for grabs uh, with, with regards to Yemen. That's on the short term. You're talking about long-term uh, choke points, the Gulf of Aden. NATO has established um, policing power over all that that shipping lane which is the busiest shipping lane uh in the world um in the arabian sea and into the gulf of aden and this is run out of london uh the headquarters are in north london stansted i believe this is where they control uh, nato's taken over that role of um uh, and to deal with the piracy issue which we talked about on the show so there's a lot going on between ethiopia somalia djibouti eritrea yemen and now in Saudi Arabia and Sudan in here. Uh, so this is an incredibly busy area in terms of geopolitics. Yeah, what I'd like to comment on that is, is if we look at the other side of that stream, we look at the African side that you brought up, you know, the GCC, Gulf Cooperation Council, the military integration bloc led by Saudi Arabia, indirectly influenced by the U.S., has actually established some very strategic military positions in that area as part of this war on Yemen. Actually, they've used the war on Yemen as a quote-unquote plausible pretext for jumping across the Red Sea and establishing a presence on the other side. I mean, back around, I think it was around November or so, there were reports that the UAE and Saudi Arabia were using uh, air train facilities in the port of Assab. On top of that, the Saudis are opening up a, a foreign base in Djibouti, interestingly, at the same time as China's opening up its first ever overseas base. Then if we swing over and look at Somalia, particularly the northwestern part of the country called Somaliland, which used to be a British colony, it's highly independent, basically its own de facto unrecognized state at this point, the UAE has been trying to get access to the port of Berbera in order to also access in order to have control of the southern part of the Gulf of Aden. And it's interesting because the UAE is really emerging as kind of like this untold aggressor here. I mean, not many people are focusing on it. I know that Vanessa Bealey is doing an excellent job. You're doing a great job. Catherine Shackdam and Eva Bartler are doing fantastic jobs talking about this. But most people aren't aware that the UAE has really kind of stepped out of Saudi Arabia's shadow and is really trying to flex its muscle here to ingratiate itself with the U.S. And why that's important, I mean, if we look at, uh, if we look at the Stockholm Institute of Peace Research, or CIPRI, I, I forget the, what the, the exact words stand for right now, they always come out with an arms report every year. Every five years, they come up with one that's a compilation of the previous half decade. The UAE always figures in the high spot for arms imports. And the average person just goes by unnoticed. They don't think twice about it. But I analyze these things, Patrick, and I'm looking at current events. I'm looking at the UAE uh, military footprint all throughout the Gulf of Aden Red Sea region. I'm looking at what they're doing in Yemen. I mean, they're basically they're basically taking over from the Saudis right now and to a large extent. And I see, I, I recall uh, an article, I forget what outlet published it. I think it was a year or two ago. And they liken the UAE to Now, of course, this is completely overblown here, and they meant it in a positive way. But we see that there's there's this collection of Gulf Emirates that are really trying to punch above their weight, and they're trying to leverage their energy resources with their financial capital of Dubai, with their military resources to kind of, I mean, you know, I would go as far as saying that, you know, I think the UAE is trying to uh, figure and plan right now, Patrick, 
for if Saudi Arabia collapses or implodes or just enters a standstill where they just stop or shut themselves off from the world, the UAE wants to be there to keep that momentum going. And the U.S. is obviously encouraging this because they don't want to lose the presence in the region. So I think this is an important angle that not a lot of people have looked at. I think you, I think you're onto something there, Andrew, and I'll tell you why. You know, I've been, I've been to the UAE a few times and, and marveled at, uh, what they've been able to build and construct in the middle of the desert, basically, uh, in that part of the world. But they've always kept, uh, a fairly low profile, uh, in terms of the, uh, regional conflicts and in geopolitics, always playing second, third fiddle. You know, Saudi Arabia and Qatar have been very boisterous in, uh, projecting, uh, their support for the Syrian rebels, for instance, and, uh, and the, the, that sort of project, if you will, to, you know, collapse uh Syria as we know it but also throwing their weight around in Lebanon and uh and all over the Middle East and Libya too uh, uh Qatar has too but the UAE has always kept quiet but the UAE is the closest in my mind uh in terms of uh they say the royal family's uh relationship and understanding with the western financial institutions uh, many of whom are based in Dubai and Abu Dhabi who have a gr- it's a great global trading hub a lot of foreign investment more foreign investment in UAE probably than in any other um, Arab state there in terms of normal commercial investment, not just for oil. Saudi Arabia could very well collapse. So the UAE is a, is a city-state of sorts. Uh, so you're t- comparing it or calling it Sparta in that way is interesting. The problem, I think, and uh, this is what I want to throw over to you, is sustainability of that, those sort of power plays. You know, there's only a few hundred thousand, maybe, I don't know, 300 and 400,000 Emiratis in total. I don't know what the number is. And the rest are all foreigners. And Saudi Arabia is also becoming more dependent on basically hiring on adjuncts for military operations. Uh, we've got reports out of Yemen about dead Sudanese army regulars. So Saudi has essentially contracted uh, Sudan. Uh, to do some fighting there, and many other mercenaries. And I think the UAE as well uh, would use their cash, basically, to buy uh, buy an army, essentially. And, and and in fact, that's what they did back in the days of the uh, the, the Peloponnesian Wars and the great city-states. They were buying their, their armies and conglomerating their armed forces that way. So uh, it is an interesting development. Yeah, and actually, you know, what's interesting is uh, I, I don't think this is that sustainable because it would have to change the model. And you hit on all the good points. I mean, they're basically throwing money around, and they're just basically hiring foreigners. A lot of them are South Asian. They work in atrocious, horrible conditions. I mean, they work in what is equivalent to modern-day slavery. I mean, whenever these so-called human rights organizations talk about slavery and all these things, they usually don't talk about what's happening in Dubai and the UAE. But I want to right now, since we were talking about like the UAE and this larger Red Sea, Horn of Africa, Arabian Peninsula region, I wanted to uh, draw our listeners' attention to Ethiopia. And I encourage them to open up a map and see where Ethiopia is located. This is a country of about 100 million people. It's the world's largest landlocked state. It has untold economic potential if it can get its act together. It had a lot of problems. There still are some ethnic regional issues. Don't get me wrong. But this is China's, perhaps China's number one ally in Africa. I mean, it's even more so than, than South Africa because the Ethiopian government, it's, it, it's a long, long acronym. It's the Ethiopian People's Democratic Revolutionary Front or something along those lines. They're pretty much modeled off of the Chinese Communist Party. And the thing about them is they're so close to China. China needs Ethiopia not only for the market, but also for the outsourcing potential. But because Ethiopia is landlocked, 
It has to depend on the newly opened railroad Djibouti to Addis Ababa. Now, at the same time as this is happening, China and Ethiopia kind of economically, strategically converging, you have the GCC opening up their military bases in the region, like I just explained. And interestingly enough, Patrick, if we recall the beginning of the year when uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran really had some tense Cold War tension, some of the countries that cut off ties with Iran, Sudan, I believe also Djibouti, and Somalia. And I know it was mocked in the Iranian press, like, you know, what is Djibouti, what is Somalia? But in the larger context of what's happening, we kind of see whose side these countries are, are going with. But Djibouti is interesting because there's, everyone has a base there. I mean, Saudis, United States, the Japanese have a base there, believe it or not. Now China and the French. So what I'm trying to get at here is if you look at the map, like I brought up, is Ethiopia's position to where in the next decade, if the Chinese development plans go according to schedule, it can be both a great market for China. It can also be a source of, this is basically one, one, one of their gateways into the larger African region, but also as an outsourcing potential, it could, it's very closely located to Europe. And again, we go back to Bab al-Mandab Straits, Red Sea, which is, you know, GCC occupied on both sides right now. And we see that, well, look, this isn't just only aimed against China. Now we're seeing how it's aimed against China's regional partners, mm-hmm. Ethiopia in this case. And, you know, Somalia has problems with Ethiopia. This is a long story. You know, Eritrea, of course, is a self-explanatory for anyone that knows the history. Eritrea used to be a part of Ethiopia, 30-year-long independence war, secessionist war, however you want to call it. So now we're kind of seeing how Yemen is important also for Africa. I mean, this is also another angle that most people aren't looking at, because remember, the war on Yemen created the pretext for the GCC to expand across, you know, across the pond, if you will, over to the eastern part of Africa to keep Ethiopia in check to contain China's rise through, you know, through eastern Africa. Okay, so you you, you mentioned um, that backing up a little bit, just to give people a little bit of background here, um, Ethiopia. You know, fairly big country, probably the biggest on the horn of all the other, bigger than Kenya, in fact, um, used to have um, a number of seaports, used to have a lot of sea access, and only in the last few years, really the last couple of decades, their coastline has uh, basically disappeared through two break-off states. One is Eritrea, and the other is uh, Djibouti. And so now Ethiopia no longer has sea access. And the same is true with South Sudan. And I know a number of major Chinese oil projects in the south of Sudan, um, in, in the Juba kind of area, and with the pipeline going to the Red Sea through, through Sudan proper. And then when that country split a couple of years ago, I believe it was in 2010, uh, then all of a sudden, uh, China's cut off, uh, from the sea. And so I see, I, I see these these changes in borders and these breakaway states not as natural organic phenomenons, but I see perhaps the hand of uh, of Washington and London, especially, and maybe Riyadh too, behind uh, this geographical change in the Horn of Africa. Yeah, this is very interesting. I mean, the first thing I want to say though is, you know, Djibouti used to be a French colony. It wasn't in with Ethiopia proper, but Eritrea was. But South Sudan, what's so interesting about that, the U.S. tried for over 30 years. I mean, they were waging the secessionist war, supporting these rebels in South Sudan, working with, you know, Uganda to have this happen, a big mess, because they wanted to separate this 
part of the country because of its energy. Also now, of course, because after the 1990s, because of the Chinese investment there, after separating it, the country quickly descended into such a violent, bloody, nasty civil war. In, uh, two years later, in uh, 2013, it's, the war is only now supposedly getting back, you know, reconciliation supposedly occurring. There's a peace framework, you know, that's going on right now. We have to see what happens. But why this is so important, Patrick, is last time when I was on the show, uh, about a couple months ago, we were discussing weapons of mass migration. Basically, a militarized population flows that are very destabilizing to host countries and to the countries that the people leave from. And, you know, I wrote an article, I wrote exclusively for Global Research about a month ago, or maybe a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I think it was a couple weeks ago. And it was about weapons of mass migration in Africa, from an African state onto another African state. Now, Patrick, this just defies all quote-unquote political correctness, because if you ask some people, they say, well, first of all, these don't exist. And it can't happen in a black-on-black context. But actually, it did. What had happened is Ethiopia right now is the largest refugee-hosting country in Africa. They host almost half a million South Sudanese refugees. Now, there's a, there's a state in, in Ethiopia called Gambella. It only has about 300,000 people. I think, I think actually slightly less, but around there. If you open up a map of Ethiopia, it's in the far western side. It's, small, it's like a little small speck, right? They have almost the same amount of locals the same amount of refugees, actually, from South Sudan. They rioted a couple weeks ago. Long story short, some two young girls were killed in a car accident, a car, NGO-driven car, hit him, killed him, and it happened to be the same ethnic group, Nuer, N-U-E-R, as most of these refugees fleeing from South Sudan that are also affiliated with the South Sudanese vice president. Basically, they went crazy. They killed about 13 people. The reports that I linked to in my article say there might have actually been many more deaths because Ethiopians are being dragged into the jungle and being hacked to death. These aren't the words from the sources themselves, African-based sources. So what does this all mean? Well, again, you know, we have this destabilization of Ethiopia, which, I mean, it's a patchwork of different ethnicities and identities. It has a lot of issues. And now one of their states is overflooded with refugees. They almost have more refugees than they do locals. It's things starting to get kind of tense. There were these riots. Now the situation is under control because there's basically martial law in place in this state. But it's because of so again. We spoke about a couple months ago, weapons of mass migration. It is applicable all across the world from all countries of origin against all targeted countries. In this case, African on African, but manipulated. If you ask me, these processes that started because of the U.S., because of the U.S.'s war on Sudan. U.S. wants to fragment Sudan. It wants to get rid of the country itself. Granted, Sudan is closer now to Saudi Arabia nowadays, and so it's kind of getting, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of being allowed to exist, if you will, if you can put it that way. But this is something very, very interesting that's happening. It deals with China, Ethiopia, Chinese energy, just the flood of refugees throughout the East African region, and it, it, it is a mess, Patrick. It's a mess, and I encourage our listeners to research it and check out my article from Global Research about these weapons of mass migration in Africa. And so, yeah, you, you hit on something that most people will be completely unaware of, and that is the uh, the, the amount of refugees from South Sudan, you know, in, in, it, it, it's comparable to, uh, you know, the impact on Turkey from Syria, if you consider the numbers involved, uh, and maybe the uh, lack of resources, I would say, that Ethiopia has to deal with that, plus the uh, huge amount of European refugees um, are f- coming 
Well, it's been going on for since the border wars, since the late 90s, from Eritrea into Europe. I know from being in London, this is a reality. A huge amount of Eritrean refugees uh, coming into there and other countries too, scattering. So th- this hybrid warfare, uh, which you talk about in your uh, book as well, your ebook, um, this, this isn't something that's exclusive uh, between the Middle East and Europe is what you're saying. This is going on. This has now been weaponized as, as it were. If, if you, if you take this theory, uh, on face value, it's being weaponized in Africa against Africa, between African countries, right? Yes. And actually, if we go a little bit deeper and we, we peel back the layers of history, we can see in the mid 1990s, there was something called the Great Lakes refugee crisis. This is in reference to the Lakes region in Africa, between Central and Eastern Africa, basically the states next to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which had two horrible wars that are known collectively as Africa's world wars because almost all countries in the continent took part in some capacity. And, you know, that's something else I want to say, Patrick. South Sudan, why else it's important is it just joined something called the East African Community, or EAC. This is a group previously of five countries in Eastern Africa, Kenya, uh, Tanzania, Rwanda, Burundi, and Uganda, that want to integrate, and eventually the plan is to form a federation. Now, there are many problems, many bottlenecks. I mean, some countries aren't moving that fast. For example, Tanzania doesn't want to move that fast. Uganda is all for it. That's part, part because Ugandan President Museveni wants this to be his ultimate legacy. There are many factors at play here. But what I'm trying to say is South Sudan just joined this framework, so it's also going to affect them as well. Now, how this, I wanted to just shift a little bit, angle gears now, this East African community. This is also one of China's gateways to the continent. I mentioned Ethiopia. It's great for China. But see here now, China is using Kenya and Tanzania as its points of access into this uh, tentative, prospective free market, this you know East African community. And actually, what China is doing is funding railroad projects in Kenya, something called the Standard Gauge Railroad, which is expected to go through Kenya to South Sudan, also through Uganda, with a long-term possibility of going to Kisangani in the Congo, which would thus connect it to the Congo River all the way to Kinshasa, the capital and get a lot of resources, so on and so forth. Next project is something called LAPSET, and L-A-P-S-S-E-T, and it stands for Lamu Port, South Sudan, Ethiopia. This is a, a intermodal transport corridor from a new port called Lamu, right near, uh, right near the Somalian border, to go up to Addis Ababa and also cross into South Sudan. I wrote an article about this. Uh, if we're oriented to review a couple months ago, so if you guys go there and type in Africa in the search bar, should pop up. But I want to mention the other projects. They're so important. These are parts of the Silk Road that no one knows about. No one really studies because most people don't know anything about Africa. In Tanzania, there's a project. There's a project. They have something called the Central Corridor, which is going to link their capital over to Rwanda, Burundi, and Uganda. Oh, yeah, Uganda and Tanzania are now building a new pipeline. Uganda has a lot of oil in the northwest near the Congo border. They're building a pipeline through Tanzania. It was supposed to be through Kenya. Political differences and cost differences changed it. Two weeks ago, they said, hey, we're going with Tanzania. There's another project called the um, Matwami Project. This is a corridor in the southern part of Tanzania over to Malawi, to Lake Malawi as well. But what's important as well is China also had a project called uh, Tazara. This was a railroad project in the 1970s. We can call it the first. Silk Road. China built a railroad from Tanzania to Zambia, landlocked, copper-rich country, 
to facilitate, you know, the time is a people's friendship, but also, most importantly for China, copper exports. So we see China's returning to a partner, partners rather, that it's had from the Cold War period and expanding on this. This goes back to the larger framework I explained about these new Silk Roads, One Belt, One Road, and China's need for outbound investment. Africa is becoming important because of its market potential and resources and labor potential. This is why AFRICOM is so insistent in trying to destabilize the continent to offset China. They'd rather do something that I describe as scorched earth, meaning destroy the country so your rival can't use it if you yourself can't control it. We see that with Libya. Chinese had so many investments. They had to evacuate their people. They left all their construction equipment. It's all destroyed now. But that's also, again, you know, goes into the larger framework. Yeah, you know, you're right. Uh, Chinese turned around and walked away from, and we're talking real cash, by the way. This isn't, you know, uh, Federal Reserve fiat notes, but they, they walked away from something like uh, $14 billion of cash investments uh, in Libya, just basically had to drop it. Now, you can imagine uh, if, if any U.S. company had to do that, um, all hell would break loose. They'd be threatening, probably the Pentagon would be threatening, you know, nuclear re- revenge, basically. Um, for, so, for, for, so what I'm here's my question now. You just sketched out, um, you know, what could be what looks to me like the next grand chessboard uh, of the of the first half of the 20th century. And if you look at the 20th century, what dominated um, a geopolitics and what dominated overseas conflicts and the overthrows of governments and the the many different uh, uh, regime change operations run out of Langley. Uh, Virginia was this was the USSR versus the United States, and there was an ideological component to it. Um, uh, oh, trying to b- basically Ronald Reagan, wherever there was a, um, they said, <laughs> yeah, wherever there was a Marxist revolution, Reagan would be there um, to basically help uh, overthrow it or or divert it. Now, looking that that was the paradigm in the in the second half of the 20th century that dominated everything in Asia, Africa, the Middle East. Um, Eurasia, Europe, um, with Gladio, and in South America and Central America, all of these regions. And now we have the same, perhaps in the 21st century, it's going to be China versus the uh, Atlanticist bloc, but it's not an ideological component anymore. It is a pure, raw economic resource component. Um, It's beyond even ideology now. What do you think about this? Yeah, that's actually what's happening. And, you know, I, I'm writing a series for Oriental Review, and I call it The Law of Hybrid War. And what I the Law of Hybrid War, which, to remind our listeners, I, I define as the phase transition from a color revolution to an unconventional war, like basically what we see happening in Syria right now, is to offset or control multipolar transnational connective infrastructure projects in targeted states using identity conflict. So what that means in practical terms is China's building all these Silk Roads. The U.S. either wants to destroy them or occupy them by targeting very important transit states or transit locations, in this case, global choke points like Yemen. So now what this means now, when we look at, you mentioned the old paradigm, and to an extent, it's still in practice against the former USSR, you know, against this land of Eurasia, because that targets the mainland, the overland aspect of One Belt, One Road, the New Silk Road. That's why Ukraine was targeted, because Ukraine was the perfect juncture point that would have linked Russia, by extension, China, with Europe. And by, by offsetting that and destabilizing that and just cutting off relations between both sides, 
engineering these situations and Euromaidan and the war on Donbass, they were able to stop it or basically divert it to an extent. Now, what you have, again, though, is you're going now to the Indian Ocean region. You're going to the you know, Gulf of Aden, Red Sea, you're going to just basically the Indian Ocean itself. And what's interesting, we mentioned uh, Zigbia Bezerzhinsky. This actually, guys, this goes back to some of his first writings. If you type in Bezerzhinsky, Ark of Chaos, he wrote, he wrote back in the 1970s, I think this is the late 1970s, that um, at the time the paradigm was different. It was about quote-unquote containing communism or whatnot. But the idea was that the whole Indian Ocean region could erupt in flames. There could be some Islamic insurgencies, all these other things going on there, and you figure out how to manage it. Well, now, flash forward about 40 years, and we see, well, now it's not the USSR that the U.S. is trying to manage in this region. It's China, and it's not ideology. It's China's real sector trade flows. So that's what we have here. We actually have a return to history. It's interesting. Zigbia Bezerzhinsky, before he really became who he was, talking about the Indian Ocean region. Now, right in his dying last days, because the guy is very old right now, now he's going back to the point that helped make his career before he was National Security Advisor. So I find this to really be an interesting uh, interesting turn of events here. I mean, it's, I, I hope everyone can just type that in. Bezerzhinsky, Ark of Chaos. Or Ark of Crisis. I think he called it Ark of Crisis, rather. And, yeah, you'll see for yourself that he kind of got his career off starting. Starting. His incipient career started with the Indian Ocean region. And, and so if you look at, you know, the, some of these seminal, I would, I would say, uh, semi, seminal geopoliticists uh, of the last hundred years that, that helped to, to basically put a name or label um, what was going on uh, from Halford McKinder's Heartland uh, theory uh, and then Thay, Admiral Thayer's um, Power of the Seas and the, also the Heartland theory as well, and, and then Brzezinski. Um, so, but my question is this, and this is kind of a big question, but so, so much is put on the shoulders of men like Zbigniew Brzezinski in terms of being one of the steering components, if you will, um, him or Carol Quigley or any of these, uh, sort of people of what I would call major figures in the shadow government, um, to, to help give a shape to the agenda, if you will. And is Brzezinski really playing against deep blue in this in his grand chessboard that this is my question because it, are there factors that are overriding beyond uh a pure you know po- politics basically because every single one of these countries you mentioned Andrew the borders mm-hmm. were drawn by by th- four countries they were either by colonial France colonial Britain um and you know the United States and maybe Portugal as well and yeah. you know and this this is what we're dealing with so is there's so much pressure especially in africa is you know is brzezinski really playing against an ai computer of 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 world history you know or or is or can this be managed in a rational uh coherent way or are they just ba- basically you know trying to you know put put bandages on something that, that that's really hemorrhaging Okay, I think it can be managed, but it's very difficult because you touched on the main point there, Patrick. When you spoke about now, I mean, we look at how those borders were arbitrarily created during these colonial periods, the periods imposed from outside to the people separating different tribes and regional identities. But since then, though, 
a certain civic nationalism has taken root in some of those countries to differing degrees, of course. You still have some tribal royalties, ethnic royalties that transcend that or that don't even deal with the civic national part. So this is precisely what, how my law of hybrid war factors into this. To these, you know, integral transit state countries or the access states, so let's just say Kenya and Tanzania to use the most recent example I brought up, these types of identity conflicts can be manufactured to create cri- internal crises to offset the infrastructure projects, to offset these, these highways, these railroads. So that's what's happening. And, you know, spoke about this, uh, the deep state or deep government. And, yeah, I, I write about it quite often. I define it as the permanent military, intelligence, and diplomatic bureaucracy of the state. Basically, they're the unelected figureheads or the unelected people that control how the state really functions. When the deep state is working at its best, you never know about it. You don't hear about it. You don't see it. But when things start to go awry, people start becoming aware that, hey, well, there's something behind the scenes going on. It's like it's like the Wizard of Oz, basically. When everything's going fine, you don't even know the wizard really exists that much. But once things start getting kind of screwed up, like in the Matrix type of way, people start realizing well, there's something behind it. Why I bring this up is uh, you spoke about these uh, great personalities in history, these people that really shaped events and really had a strong impact. And, you know, this does happen. I mean, they influence. They influence these deep state components, and they put them in the motion. They, they propose an idea, like Brzezinski's idea of, you know, creating these Islamic insurgents all across the world in order to combat the Soviet Union because those Mujahideen will kill the communist infidels. That was the idea, right? And the deep state, they bought it. It sounded very convincing, so they started doing it. Then, I mean, now you have the main idea of containing China at all costs. And I say containing, ironically, because I don't think it needs to be contained. I think China should flourish and help everybody connect and create this real new world order. So now everything is its going like it, it's still Eurasia. Eurasia is still the focus, but it's also the Indian Ocean. Because it's the Indian Ocean region, naval force is preponderant. That's why many countries are building up their navies. The U.S. has the base in Diego Garcia, right smack dab in the center of the Indian Ocean. India, you know, India, guy, Patrick, I hate to say it. It pains me to say it. I've written a lot about it lately. I've done a lot of Facebook reports about it as well, sharing news articles. The U.S. strategy now, Patrick, I think, and I really believe this. I wrote it for uh, Peter Lavelle's new uh, online outlet, uh, Duran, D-U-R-A-N. As you know, the U.S. has co-opted the Indian deep state, and they're turning against China, Patrick. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to talk about this a little bit more, because I think this is, this is the geopolitical pivot right now. Okay, so just, just let's, let's put that in the framework. So India, uh, which used to be greater India, used to encompass all of Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh. And uh, I'm not sure about Sri Lanka. You'd have to correct me on that. But uh, Sri Lanka was separate. Separate. Okay. So when the British, yeah. when the British basically left, of co- of course they didn't really fully leave. But when they left um, on paper, um, they left uh, a divided India, and they basically sowed the seeds of almost a permanent uh, conflict um, and some a lot of uh, polarity and geopolitical friction between and religious friction as well, uh, and lots of other things uh, between Pakistan mainly uh, and India. So they they basically when they exited. They they sort of booby trapped the region, uh, if yeah. you will, and then so the United States uh, rushed uh, to help India become a nuclear state. Uh, lots of uh, help and finance and uh, engineering know how on that side. 
and and also to compete against the USSR and the Soviet influence uh, in that part of the world. And in Pakistan, the U.S. has also tried and worked very hard uh, to try to basically have its be, be, be one of the main influencers there along with uh, the United Kingdom uh, for Pakistan. And so they've created artificial tension in my opinion uh in this region and so and meanwhile the uh the technological revolution is already happening below the surface over the last 30 years in india that's separate from this kind of uh, uh c- contrived geopolitical uh situation that was really created uh by by the british uh, uh colonial exit if you will go ahead yeah i mean it all comes down to the british right now and particularly in the framework of Indian Chinese uh, to historical tensions. They never had any up until the colonial period. Then, because, you know, the British expansion into the Tibet, they started trying to wrangle Tibet away from China, signing deals one-on-one with Tibet against, away from actual Beijing at the time, Peking, and they were able to set this border, you know. So they set the border between India and China. Then during the Cold War, you know, India was actually pretty close with the USSR, but they were also flirting with the U.S. at the same time. But what happened, though, is uh, is China started, you know, trying to correct these borders or basically taking issue with the falseness of some of the borders. It eventually led to a war in 1962. China was able to regain the, the territory of Oxide Chin. Now, India regards this as as uh, um, as Kashmir, actually. See, this is something else I want to mention real quick, guys, okay? Is India doesn't recognize any contested territory. They say it's all theirs. By all theirs, they mean all of Kashmir, including the part that is Pakistani administered, specifically Gilgit-Baltistan uh, province, right? Now, this is the area that borders Pakistan and China. Why it's so important? Well, before I tell you that, India, sorry, uh, China and Pakistan have always been very close because of India, right? So they've always been very close. Now, in the new framework, China is building something called CPEC, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. It's $46 billion, B with the billion, energy, world's largest solar farm, roads, highways. I mean, they're building everything, railroads, pipelines, everything, to a port in the south in the Arabian Sea called Gwadar. Okay? So from the Chinese perspective, they need CPEC in order to have an outlet both for trade and strategically in the Indian Ocean. Why? Because of the Strait of Malacca and the South China Sea tensions. They could have rerouted through Myanmar, also known as Burma to some, but the U.S. flipped the government, the generals sold out, they canceled a $20 billion railroad project. They're supposed to go along the same route as a recently built pipeline from the city of Kwok Phu, this is a port, also a special economic zone, to Kunming, the capital of the Chinese uh, province of Yunnan. So anyhow, just to get back to the larger framework, Pakistan-China, very, very important, you know, infrastructure conduit, right? Now, India, with these existing border tensions with China, these tensions have basically, they had receded. They became a thing of the Cold War past. There's still an issue, though, with an area that is fully administered by India called Arunachal Pradesh. The Chinese call that Southern Tibet. In 1962, they were able to overrun almost all of it, but then they withdrew and they wanted to negotiate. India has been dragging its heel, says, hey, we don't negotiate. Long story short here, okay, U.S. is trying to use these uh, previously dormant uh, territorial disputes, trying to exacerbate them in order to provoke China into making moves that will justify an Indian-U.S. counter-response. What's very important here, Patrick, Mm. India agreed in principle last month 
when U.S. Defense Secretary Ashton Carter visited, to something called the Logistics Support Agreement, or LSA. What this means, officially on paper, is that the U.S. will be able to, uh, to arrest, resupply, and um, I think refuel all air, land, and sea military units on a case-by-case basis on any single Indian military facility, period, okay? Now, in exchange, India can do the same to the U.S. Well, what, Indian military is going to operate out of Texas? I mean, let's get real here. This is for the U.S. to have a de facto rotational presence all throughout India. This is only aimed against China at exacerbating the Chinese-Indian tensions because Prime Minister Modi is very close with the United States. Now, what India just did last week, and I posted on my Facebook, Sputnik reported, and I also presented the link, that India is now trying to refurbish between 24 to 39 World War II era bases in its northeastern Himalayan region. Hmm. That's a euphemism for Arunachal Pradesh or South Tibet, the disputed region. Why is India trying to reopen over two dozen air bases on the Chinese border in disputed territory? 100%. This is, this isn't, they're not going to be taking aerial photography landscape pictures. <laughs> this is, this is for, this is against China. And it goes with the U.S.'s LSA, a logistics service agreement, so the U.S. can use all of India as a base for provoking China because it all goes down to the CPEC corridor between China and Pakistan in contested Kashmir, particularly going through the Pakistani-administered province of what they call Gilgit, Baltistan. So, so th- this is essentially, potentially, you're saying, the, 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 the refurbishment or renovation of staging areas uh, in, in northeast uh, India and along sort of the Tibetan region, uh, yes. Planning for something in maybe long uh, series of skirmishes over the next few decades, maybe fifty years ahead or something like this. Um, is this is this kind of like safe to say they're preparing for something? Is what you're saying? Oh, we're not only preparing, they're engineering it because look, India is a member of BRICS, and up until. Actually, up until about a couple months ago, I was kind of full. I thought, oh, well, you know, Indian government is all for BRICS. But then I thought about it. First of all, I never personally trusted Prime Minister Modi. I was always kind of suspicious about him. I did my research. Anyone can do this research. Please check my Facebook wall. I reposted a lot of articles. They're all backed up with with, uh, uh, citations and everything. Prime Minister Modi comes from an extreme Hindu uh, faction called RSS. It stands for something in Hindi that is ba- it's basically a Hindi- Hindu extremist group, okay? Let's keep in mind that India has more Muslims than Pakistan, okay? India cannot exist as a Hindu-centric state. It, can, it is a secular state. It should not emphasize one religion over another. Modi has these very, very extreme views. They're all public knowledge. Anyone can read about them. Modi has a plan for how he wants to reshape India. Patrick... Remember Obama? Everyone believed in well, not everyone, but a lot of people believed in him. They 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 went hook, line, and sinker. They believe in hope and change, and then he disappointed everyone. Mm-hmm. That's what Modi's doing. His true colors are coming out now as a Hindu nationalist, pro-American. On top of that, even though the U.S. Had, didn't grant him a visa for so many years because of some contested massacres, that's another story for another day. I want to explain to our listeners though, how does a BRIC state just team up with the U.S. as like one of its main allies? Well, first of all. What's happening with the U.S. and India? This is equivalent to what the U.S. did with China in the old Cold War in the 70s, Nixon's opening to China. This is, this is meant to turn the resistant bloc against itself, okay? So they're turning India against China. How they're doing this is India wasn't 
uh, orthodox multipolar state. But that what I mean is there are three elements of multipolarity that I describe, and I'm, I'm actually writing a series that should be out in the next couple of weeks when I finish it for the Katehan Moscow-based think tank. Well, I say, look, you have economic multipolarity, which is, you know, de-dollarization. Okay, check. India wants to do that. Institutional multipolarity, New Bricks Bank, Currency Reserve Fund. Yeah, check. India, you know, SCO, check. But all this, I say, is predicated on geopolitical multipolarity. If you don't have the geopolitical multipolarity, states will take steps like India is doing that could prospectively reverse and destroy all of its previous multipolar advances. In this case, because India is not geopolitically multipolar, in this case, it does not, it wants to use unipolar means, aggression, intimidation, bullying to solve its bilateral problems with neighbors, in this case, Pakistan and China, also Nepal. We can talk about that in a second if you if you wanted to. That's an important proxy battleground right now. That they're, they're turning towards the U.S. because from the way the Indian establishment sees it, okay, they have three primary objectives, Patrick. First one, they want to contain China. Second of all, they want to challenge Pakistan. Third, they want to conquer all of Kashmir. So because of this, we have... We have India turning towards the U.S. They're about to be de facto military allies. No, de jure military allies, actually. Prime Minister Modi is going to visit the U.S. next month. He's going to address Congress. It'll be his fourth visit in two years, okay? I predict he's going to sign the logistics service agreement during that time. In the month until then, he's trying to provoke China into a highly publicized incident or statement so that he can present that to Congress as so-called proof for justifying this de facto military alliance. On top of that, Indian military voices, all of this is shared on my Facebook from Indian sites that people want to check it out throughout the past two weeks. They asked for China to immediately halt all new Silk Road construction through Pakistan. Um, what? This is what the U.S. wants. I mean, this isn't a multipolar British country talking. This is a country whose deep state has been taken over by the United States. That's what has happened. I hate to say it. It pains me to say it. I wrote an article for the Duran, Peter Lavelle's new media outlet. It's on my Facebook. You can check it out. It's all cited, and I talk about this. It's a two-part article. Okay, so what you just what you've just outlined there, I'm I'm thinking from a Pentagon point of view, uh, from a military industrial complex point of view, I'm seeing perhaps one of the greatest emerging markets for arms sales. Uh, for for U.S. defense contractors uh, and British, perhaps too, they'll get a little chunk of it uh, for the next I don't know fifty sixty years. I'm looking. Oh, you're so right, Patrick. Let me just tell you real quick how right you are. If you go back to the SIPRI report, S-I-P-R-I, Stockholm International Peace Research Institute report, they came out with the report from the past five years of the main arms purchasers. India is always up there. I think they're number two. I think they're like right behind. Saudi Arabia, because they're just filthy with throwing around money to buy whatever they want. India, though, it's not just the U.S., okay? Right now, I want, I want to let everybody know, I wrote about this previously for Sputnik last year when CIPRI came out with the report. If you type in Andrew Kripko, CIPRI, and Sputnik, it'll pop up, okay? Now, wh- why I'm saying this is everyone thinks Russia is the number one arms partner of India. Yes, factually, that's true in terms of percentage. But lately, the past couple years, the U.S. has been selling more to India. Now, that's not to say India is completely abandoning Russia, not at all. They're kind of just taking arms wherever they can get it at this point. But also, you know what's interesting, Patrick? Israel. Israel and India. Mm. Those two are so close right now because, see, the Hindu nationalist group RSS that Prime Minister Modi comes from and his BJP 
party is based off of, they're like, they're like hardcore Zionists. I mean, they really support Israel. In fact, Prime Minister Modi might even visit Israel in the next year, okay? Israel has been selling drone technology and a bunch of other things to India. In such a high proportion, Patrick, that I wrote about in the Sputnik article, it has made Israel one of the largest arms sellers in the world, principally driven by arms exports to India. Wow. Okay. So This is a fact. This is a fact. That's a huge market, potentially. I mean, if you, it, it, India has the luxury of being an elephant, and I think it's, it's hard yeah. for a lot of people to understand the size of this country, the population of this country, the potential uh, uh, commercial and markets and export potential of this country is enormous. It's, uh, on, it's, it's no one's on par except maybe China. Uh, with the India, so the power, so India can afford to move slowly. And if you look at history, if you look at the long view of history, um, essentially we're looking at they're still, and they will remain in a in a neo colonial kind of phase because they've always, been, you know, the 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 leadership, the elites, the India is a caste uh, has a caste system that governs a lot of its society and social hierarchy still to this day and the elite castes in india would always cozy up to whoever was the de facto world power at the time and for so long uh it was the british empire and that's who they did their business with and they would do the same with the united states now because they would view the united states as being number one uh in that respect but if another power emerged andrew um as the de facto uh or or another team a uh, uh, co- collective of a couple partners let's say that, that would be the emerging power if you will i i see india is scooting over and and cozying up to them and leaving the u.s in the lurch I mean, I, I don't know if you under, if you agree with me on that, but that to me, that's always been that is the Indian elite leadership mentality. Yes, I agree. From my observations of the Indian elites, you know, mentality, I definitely see that. But at the same time, because of that, because they just basically just go cozy up with whoever's winning, so to speak, or whoever they think is winning. Because China's on the ascendancy, the U.S. wants to stop it. The U.S. wants to break them apart and keep them apart. Therefore, they're trying to reinstigate these border conflicts. Now, now, don't just take my word for it. This isn't speculation, Patrick. Last week, also posted on my Facebook, U.S. diplomat made a huge scandal. What he said, he said, Arunachal Pradesh, which the Chinese recognize as southern Tibet, even though it's not administered by them, is you know 100% Indian territory, unquestionable Indian territory. That's what he said. China immediately, immediately asked for clarification. They said the U.S. should not be interfering, and this should be a bilateral issue, and it does not need un, uninvited third-party you know, interference. Now, it makes me wonder, though, Patrick, why didn't India you know, uh, uh, say anything bad about the U.S.? Why didn't they complain about the U.S. for interfering? Why? Because I say that when Defense Secretary Ashton Carter visited India at the middle of last month, that it wasn't just a routine visit, so to speak. They were talking about the LSA. They were talking about how to create the situation to justify this de facto military agreement. And I think it was decided that the U.S. would have to diplomatically interfere in Arunachal Pradesh, otherwise known as South Tibet by the Chinese, in order to aggravate tensions. Because if it, once you set events into motion, then you start creating, they start getting their own momentum. And this India-China thing, because they're so big, as you said, I mean, it's like it's almost impossible to comprehend how big these countries are. Once they get into a certain emotion, it's going to be really hard to pull back. Right. If they get into a motion of hostility, U.S. manipulated, 
through the co-option and seizure of, you know, India's deep state and its elites, then you start, hey, even if China is winning, Indian elites say, hey, we're not going to side with them because remember what I said is the three foundational tenets of contemporary Indian geopolitics. Contain China, challenge Pakistan, conquer all of Kashmir. And that's what the Modi elite believes, and they're the ones calling the shots right now. And what and what what are the prospects for the for Kashmir? Because um, th- this is the central uh, bone of contention between uh, Pakistan and India. Besides any re- perceived religious differences, it's really about this region uh, that they've been at odds for for so long. What are what are the chances of a resolution on this, or is this just going to be a permanent stalemate uh, for the next hundred years? Oh, there's no chance for a resolution, Patrick, because India is about to pass a new law. Everyone can research this, too. Western media is even reporting on it, that India is about to pass a law to make it illegal to publish any map that does not correlate with their official map. By that, it means, it means that Google, any company, any, any journalist, any, any, anything operating in India has to pose, post the map that shows India conquering all of Kashmir, even though Pakistan administers Gilgit Baltistan and another part of, 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 of uh, Kashmir, which is further to the southwest, and China's building the infrastructure projects through there. And also this Arunachal Pradesh, South Tibet. And actually, now, Patrick, not only going to be illegal, you could face up to seven years in jail and pay $15,000, okay? $15,000, fine, if you don't publish their right map, their politically correct map. So when you have such an obstinate, stubborn, no-negotiation stance, well, even though they're technically negotiating with China, when you have such a stance like that, it makes it, I mean, it's impossible to resolve it. Now, let's remember what I mentioned earlier. China needs CPEC, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. It will not, under any circumstances, allow India to forcibly take that over, especially when there's Chinese workers on the ground. There might be some Chinese special forces. Who knows? Rumors are, you know, rumors abound about that. But there's, there's no way. $46 billion of Chinese investment is going to be destroyed by an Indian invasion of Pakistani-administered northern Kashmir, which is now known as Gilgit Baltistan. No way. And when you look at the Modi government pushing through this very, if you ask me, my opinion, super radical law, making it illegal, criminalizing the publishing of a map that is unrealistic. India does not administer the northern part of Kashmir. It does not at all. I mean, like I said, China's there, Pakistan's there, Pakistani-administered territory, and you're going to find people and throw them to jail for almost seven years? I mean, this, come on. I mean, like I said, things are getting very extreme in India because the elite has been totally controlled and taken over by the United States and the deep state is I mean it's a, it's an american puppet at this point. And so so this this brings some uh important focus now what you just described as uh, you know potentially of CPAC the, the the chinese the far western provinces of china the the problem perhaps you could see an emergence of islamic terrorism uh becoming a bigger factor in uh, uh Xinjiang out in the in the western China, right around this area along the Pakistani border region and Tazikstan and Kyrgyzstan, but this this could be instability. I'm saying uh, in the in the far uh, western Chinese regions, all of a sudden instability breaks out in, in the same way it it randomly or not so randomly breaks out uh, along the Syrian border regions or in Iraq or in any of these other contested Afghanistan, for instance. So this, again. We're back to uh, the Mujahideen and Zbigniew Brzezinski's chessboard again. 
Oh, yeah, actually, and see, that's something I wanted to mention, too, okay? Actually, India hosted a conference of anti-Chinese separatists. I mean, I call them terrorists or separatists or regime change forces, a whole group of them, okay? In the city of Dharamsala, this is a traditional, uh, um, traditional Buddhist uh, uh, city, and it's, you know, it's where the Dalai Lama basically is. Now, they didn't just host regular groups, or quote-unquote regular groups, you know, media-friendly groups. They wanted to host a guy called Dokun Isa. I wrote about this article for the Katehan Think Tank, K-A-T-E-H-O-N.com, if you want to check it out. Just type in Andrew Kripko and you get the article. I wrote about India's politicization of terrorism. India wanted to give this guy a visa to visit. He, he represents the quote-unquote World Order Congress, which is a political front for the East Turkestan Islamic movement, the, the terrorists that are killing people in Russia, China, and Xinjiang. Well, eventually India backtracked amidst, you know, global outcry over what they were doing. They said, hey, we can't give you the visa. We didn't know you were on Interpol's red alert notice. China issued a red alert notice for him a couple years ago. The guy is an internationally wanted criminal that currently resides in Germany, okay? So anyhow, while why China did that, sorry, why India did that, they were upset that China had blocked the U.N. motion to declare Masood Azhar a terrorist. This is a guy who's accused of a lot of bad things, from Mumbai to the Path and Code terrorist attack on an Indian Air Force base earlier this year. But the thing is this, okay? The guy's in Pakistan. India usually deals bilaterally with Pakistan. But India decided to internationalize the situation in Pakistan because Pakistan didn't want to turn them over. This is this always happens. They always have these types of disputes. So India took it to the UN, UN Security Council, whatnot, and China didn't vote for the measure and blocked it. Now you might say, well, what? Well, guys, as we all know, no way India, sorry, China was going to sell Pakistan out or going to interfere. Actually, because what it comes down to is China's principal international position. Regardless of what's going on, it says, hey, this is a bilateral dispute. It does not need to be internationalized. We have, should not even have any say in this. We're not going to let this go forward. So China, India used that, okay? India used that to justify the further escalation of everything I mentioned, demanding that China stop building new Silk Road through northern Kashmir, Gilgit-Baltistan, uh, deciding to reopen and refurbish these 24 to 39 World War II bases in disputed northeastern India, Arunachal Pradesh, southern Tibet, why they're starting to continue going forward with this LSA, Logistic Service Agreement. This whole spat, though, India didn't invite the guy to get the visa, Dolkun Isa, Orgor terrorist, until after Ashton Carter visited India. I theorized in my uh, Katehan article, I argue that this was a pre-planned information provocation to elicit an angry Chinese response that can be used to whip up more nationalism in India to eventually, quote-unquote, justify this de facto military alliance with the U.S. and India. Because when India, real quick, Patrick, in India gave the guys a visa, Indian social media erupted in an orgy of nationalism with the hashtag Modi slaps China. Okay, cool, hashtags happen. But it was promoted in such a way that it makes me wonder if it was state-supported and when we look at the way the Chinese view the world and everything, I mean, you have one guy slapping an entire country. This was seen as so disrespectful, so out of line with Brooks' friendship. This was seen as just so, like, disappointing, you know, disappointing that they would want to host this terrorist guy. They hosted a bunch of others, too, a bunch of other inter-Mongolian groups, quote-unquote student democracy groups. Actually, the group, the organization that was uh, gathering there is the... Um, 
Chinese, a, a people's initiative, something like that. I, I, it's just some like a utopian sounding name, right? Or Orwellian sounding name. Well, this group, Patrick, they're not just anti-Chinese, they're anti-Russian. Because if you go on their website, as I linked to in my the Duran article, the two-part series about India, you go on their website, they supported something called the Global Magnitsky Act which is basically sanctioning Russia everywhere across the world through extrajudicial U.S. administration of its so-called wall. They even hosted a conference in Washington, D.C. with government figures to argue for this. So you have this group all of a sudden you know, being invited to organize all these anti-Chinese terrorist separatist regime change groups in northern India that is also wants to sanction Russia. I mean, they're all for it. They want to invite these terrorist groups. And I just kept wondering to myself, what the heck is India doing? And that, Patrick, to me, that was the final line where I said, you know what? I'm writing about this. I don't care how, quote, unquote, politically incorrect it is to talk about what India is doing right now. I'm going to come out and I'm just going to say it and I'm going to put it out on social media. I received a lot of you know, pushback from it, but I stand by everything I wrote 100% because it's all documented. Well, there's, there's definitely... This is an area that uh, not many people are focused on. Absolutely, the media are not even uh, in the room. They're not even in the in in the stadium. <laughs> They're not yeah. in the ballpark on this. But um, yeah. so so we're we're going to keep a closer eye on this, and we're going to where possible. We're also going to try to uh, repost your work uh, wherever it is uh, on this subject as well. Um, fast, fascinating dive into what is really the next grand chessboard uh andrew so we really appreciate your insights uh on this thank you and it's been educational uh but again i said this last time we spoke we've only scratched the surface uh, <laughs> yeah. uh we've only scratched the surface of this and uh, we're going to have to get you on again uh to pick up where we left off on this because i think um i think this is definitely where things are going um while the media is obsessed with obama's pivot towards asia or uh in or brexit or whatever uh this is where it's really happening in my opinion and this is where china is really rubbing up um against the west um in this region right here so we really appreciate your insights yeah, thank you very much for having me, and I want to thank the audience for listening to this interview. Thank you very much. And uh, and and do you have a do, do you have your own blog or do you have a clearinghouse uh, for your work, Andrew, uh, where people can go? Um, I haven't uh, centralized everything together. I posted all on my Facebook, but my uh, my main portals right now, my three main channels: OrientalReview dot org, dot com, k a t e h o n dot com. And the new site that just came up last week, the Doran, D-U-R-A-N.com, that's where I have my most recent Indian analysis. So you guys can just check those out. And if anyone's interested, just scroll through my Facebook for the past couple of weeks. Everything I mentioned, all these news articles, my articles, the lively discussions that were going back and forth, everything is on there. So everyone can check it out. You can see different views. Many people, we had some very lively discussions, really. So people can get all sides of the story there, and they can access all the primary documents I was referencing. Uh, we will we'll point you in that direction. We've got a link to Andrew's uh, Sputnik page right now, but we'll extend that a little bit later. But uh, Andrew Karibko, uh, one of the best, in my opinion anyway, one of the best uh, geopolitical analysts uh, getting into the detail of uh, what's going on in this part of the world. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you. All right, there he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That is Andrew Karibko, and uh, he's going to uh, hopefully be sharing a lot more information with us in the near future. And uh, there's a lot going on in the world, and it's seldom being talked about. 
but it is on this show. We're going to be back in uh, a few minutes after these messages. We're going to be connecting our next guest. His name is Basil Valentine, and he's in the United Kingdom, and he happens to be our roving uh, democracy correspondent uh, right now. We're searching for democracy in the next and final segment of the Sunday Wire. This is Patrick Henningsen, your host. We'll be right back. 